House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Oh, welcome back to the House of Mystery. I'm your host today, Al Warren, and sitting on the side is... Kev Thompson. Okay. Um, another day. Um, we're not talking about the weather anymore, because we're... <laughs> Yeah, because we're kind of all over the place now. Yeah, so I, if it's good weather, I'm not going to tease the ones that are having the bad weather. But um, so here we go, another day. Um, we are going into true crime again, and we're going to be talking about a book out of Canada, and uh, it's called Murder Lost to Time. And it's the true story of one of Canada's oldest unsolved murders Ooh, now, a cold case a cold case now now <laughs> uh, this, pardon, pardon the pun yeah oh so this just came out this book and um we happen to have the author with us and he's going to talk a little bit about how he got to writing the book like what, what's it about he's going to get you excited um his name is joseph a lapalo and he's joining us from Eastern Canada. Thanks for being here, Joe. Thank you very much for inviting me on the show, guys. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's our pleasure. Yeah. We love talking to two crime writers. Um, so, now, if I understand this right, this, this is really the only book you've written. This is your first. It is my first book, yes. Wow. I well, haven't. I was going to say, okay, that's... That's great, uh, but so how did you get into writing? Like, where did that come from for you? Um, that's hard for me to explain because I really didn't set out to write a book. What happened is when I became aware of this family uh, murder mystery involving my great uncle and his uh, cold case uh, that was never solved, I started doing some research, and the more the more I researched, the more the book more or less presented itself to me, mm -hmm. the story. And it wasn't until after I finished digging up all the documents and doing my research and resolving it, finally solving it, that I decided that uh, I would take a stab at writing a book on it. I, I believe the story is very unique, and it's it's all true. That yeah. The contents of the book. I've taken no literary license to embellish anything or uh, to color anything. It, it, this book chronicles my research and my journey back into the past to try and uh, find the people who were responsible for this. And, and that was quite a bit of research, wasn't it, if I'm right? Uh, I Just so f for the listeners to know, how long did it take you to uh, do all the research and put this book together? It was very, uh, well, the research itself took approximately three and a half, maybe a little bit long, three and a half years, or a little bit longer, almost close to four years, because of the length of time that had went by, and everything uh, was archived, all the documents I needed to get. And then the book took me about, about two years to write. So all entailed, this was a six-year project for me. Now, would it be fair to say, though, that uh, an additional motivator is that you have a personal interest in this? 
Yes, uh, like I said before, he, this was my great uncle. This is my father's uncle. So how, how did that feel? I mean, you know, were, were you kind of afraid to look, or did you just dive right in? I dove right in. I, I had no fear at all about uh, tr trying to resolve this. The, the only apprehension I had, like I said before, was the amount of time that went by. It was close to 94 years, and there was nobody still alive that I could ask about it. But at certain points in my life, the subject of, of his murder kept coming up. As a matter of fact, um, just to briefly detail uh, the events of July the 20th, 1917, he was sitting, he was a taxi driver in Toronto, Canada. And um, he was sitting on the taxi stand with his friend in, in his car waiting for a fare. And I believe in 1974, 1975, I met this man. His name was Joseph Pill. He was a good friend of my great uncle. And I didn't know him. He recognized me. He said that I looked like my great uncle. Hmm. And upon meeting him, I had a brief conversation about the case. Although at the time I didn't have any documentation, I really didn't know anything about it. Had I have the information that I have now, I could have asked him some questions that would have made my my research a little bit easier, but I just didn't have it at my fingertips at the time. Well, how fortunate, though, that, that like you said, you were able to actually get documentation. I mean, you know, let, let's be intellectually honest. It's been over a hundred years. Stuff gets lost, stuff gets shuffled, gets destroyed. Um, you know, hey, we don't need these old records anymore. Send them to the shredder or to the incinerator. But you were able to put your hands on everything. Well, that's exactly right. And I was fortunate to a degree, too, because the only existing police report on the homicide was archived at the province of Ontario archives. And I was told, uh, too, that after 100 years... They discard um, 100-year-old documents. They don't keep it anymore because oh, wow. they figure who's ever interested in it. So had I have not gotten the, this one remaining report, which was uh, very helpful in me solving the case, like if I had tried to do it now, it probably wouldn't be in existence anymore. Man, and the case would have been unsolved forever. Yes. Well, you ran the clock out, didn't you? I sure did. I sure did. You know, and I was. I guess I. I guess I was fortunate that uh, I had came to a point in my life that I. I was allotted some time to be able to work on this because it was was quite tedious. Uh, one one of the problems was where to start. With the amount of time that gone had gone by, like even even the place where the, the murder had taken place, the street names were changed. I couldn't find it on a on a modern day map of Toronto. So I had I had to go to I had several visits at uh, historical societies to try and find out uh, where where the location was really at. Um, I also had to find out 
about the Ontario Temperance Act, which, which was akin to uh, prohibition, alcohol mm-hmm. prohibition in the United States. And I wasn't even aware that this was instituted in 1916 in Canada, alcohol prohibition. Right, right. So when I first started researching the case, the only thing I had was some newspaper clip clippings that I got from the archives. And uh, the rest of it was all a maze that I had to sift through. It was a learning curve, too. A lot of legwork. And the more information I gathered, like I said, the, the book more or less wrote itself. So maybe let's bring up um, the actual crime itself. So you were saying he was a taxi driver, and um, he was, uh, I guess, doing a, uh, he was doing his job. And um, so what happened to him? Uh, uh, what do you mean it happened to me? You want me to tell Like, how did it yeah, describe it? Yeah, describe the crime itself. Okay. Uh, on the night of July the 19th, 1917, he was sitting on the taxi cab stand with his friend, Joseph Pill, and, they, and he was waiting for a fare. Now, the way it works on the taxi stand, first car up gets the first fare. At approximately 11.45 uh, p.m., a quarter to midnight, a man and a woman approached the taxi cab. Uh, The woman went to his side of the car, the driver's side. He was sitting on the driver's side. The man went to the back of the car. Both of them were very sloppily dressed. But the thing about them was they both made a very concentrated effort in concealing their identities. The woman wore a very large... Uh, wide-brimmed hat that drooped down and covered the features of her face. The only thing Joseph Pill uh, was was able to tell the police about her uh, was approximately her age and that she had two very large prominent front teeth. (laughs) Her face was obscured by a hat. The man walked around to the back of the taxi cab. He had the collar of his coat pulled up and the cap he was wearing pulled down. So he couldn't really be identified. He didn't, and he didn't speak a word throughout the whole meeting. The woman made an attempt to hire him to take her out to an area called High Park, which is west of Toronto. And she said that she had been out that way a couple of nights before in the green car with, with the white stripe. Well, that was the description of the car that he was driving. There was also one other man that had the identical colored car, but wasn't working that night. His name was Frank Lombardi. And uh, after some talk, like, he really, he at first he refused to take them. They were very scruffy looking, and he, mm-hmm. uh, it was said by a couple other drivers, they looked like they didn't have the money to pay the fare. But it was also said during an inquest that um, Carmine, that's, that was the victim, my great uncle, wasn't uh, shy about asking for his money in advance, the fare, the taxi fare in advance, if he felt that people couldn't afford it. Hey, no but problem with that. that. <laughs> yeah, no, he had no problem doing that, but he never did ask for that. And that's a thing that raised a red flag uh, 
with me during the investigation is that if um, he originally didn't want to take them, what was the reason? If it was uh, that they didn't look like they could afford it, well, why didn't he ask for them uh, the fare in advance? That would have settled the matter right there. So what was his real reason for not taking them? And that's what I had to um, unravel during the investigation because a lot of things were... Although it was recorded in the newspaper and testimony from people, it, it didn't really tell the real motive behind everything that was going on at that taxi stand when she tried to hire him. In any case, uh, 15 or 20 minutes went by. It was shortly after midnight, and he finally agreed to take them to the destination they were asking to be taken to. Joseph Pill exited the car on the passenger side. She got in, and so did the man. But they both got in the back seat of the car. They left the taxi stand, and that's the last time his friend ever saw him alive. That was shortly after midnight. At approximately 5.15 a.m. in the morning at, um, at Humber Bay area, which is west of Toronto, uh, his body was found. Uh, he had been stabbed approximately 14 times all oh, the back. And um, his taxi was standing in the middle of the road, and his body was in a very shallow ditch, approximately 25 feet away from the car. And a great deal of suspicion fell on this man and woman, who were never identified. They were never identified in a police report. No witness came forward. There were two rewards offered. Nobody, nobody ever mentioned them by name. And once, uh, shortly after I started gathering just this information through um, newspaper articles, I realized that in order to solve this crime, you have to be able to... Uh, the task would have been to try and identify these people after 94 years. Mm. Because That's... I knew they were involved with it. I mean... The only reason for them to conceal their identity was uh, they knew what was going to happen to them later on. They weren't the ones that actually committed the murder. They were, their job was to lure him out there. However, the woman was the mastermind behind this whole plan. Even the manner in which his body was uh, left was all staged, but they didn't know it. The police didn't know it at the time. And as a result of the staging of the body, they seized upon the motive or what they thought was the motive. They thought it was from a street affair or he had offended um, somebody else's uh, wife, somebody's wife or somebody's woman, and this was revenge for that insult. However, that wasn't the true motive because... He had been uh, recently, he was married to a woman in 1914 when he was 17 years old. And the marriage was recently annulled in Buffalo, New York. Now, you couldn't get a divorce in Canada without going through an act of parliament. So what people did was they went to the United States and got it annulled there. Well, the annulment was already granted. And he was, he was like a, a, a buck in heat. All he cared about was getting his ex-wife back. He was madly in love with her. He had eyes for no other woman. This is what cast doubt 
on the theory that the police came up with about him being killed over an insult to another woman. He wasn't interested in any any other woman except his ex-wife. So I knew that, that that motive was false. So I had to find a real reason for the motive. And now, like now, I said, but, there was nobody, nobody I could ask about it. Now, now, before we get to the motive, though, I mean, let's back up just a little bit. How are you so certain that he wouldn't have an affair? Or, I mean, what proof do you have that maybe this wasn't just a, you know, I'm caught up in the moment thing? Yeah, like a affair that went wrong, or maybe he said the wrong thing to this woman and man and and insulted her, and the man acted in revenge. Uh, I believe it was three or four days before the murder took place. His estranged wife was going out with... Um, with another man. He had confronted this man in a garage in downtown Toronto. They got into a heated argument, and uh, my great uncle actually struck him and knocked him to the ground and told him, you keep away from my wife. As far as he was concerned, she was still his wife. Okay. I can understand that. Okay. So this is one of the things. Now, Now, had he been involved with another woman or uh, had eyes for another woman, or was interested in any other woman, would he be acting like this to the, uh, to, to the, uh, to the man that was now seeing his, uh, his ex-wife? I mean, it, it doesn't seem very logical, does it? No, not at this point, no. You know, it's like... Yeah, but this was not a spur-of-the-moment thing either, and one of the things that cast a lot of doubt on that was the manner the manner in which he was lured out there, see? And, and, and later on, I was to find out the real motive behind this. Like I said, the Ontario Temperance Act had been passed, and I searched through uh, the archives of Toronto, through the police court record books one day. I read through approximately 3,000 pages, and I found out that he had been arrested on the charge of ISA, which was the illegal shipping of alcohol. The Temperance was, Act was passed in 1916, which made alcohol illegal. But in 1917, there was another law passed making the shipping of it illegal. Mm. So he was a runner. Well, exactly. What had happened was um, a lot of times alcohol was shipped to different locations. In in the United States, they used to call uh, illegal drinking places speakeasies. Yes. In Canada, they used to call them blind pigs. Called them what? And, uh, blind pigs. Oh, that is cool. Yeah, that's what they said. That was the... <laughs> And uh, there was quite a lot of them operating in Toronto because no one's uh, desire to quit drinking coincided with the law that was passed. You, you know what happened in the United States. More people were drinking once they passed the prohibition. Yeah, well, that's the same thing that happened here. And uh, he thought this was a, a very... Uh, he, could, he could make some extra money by being more or less a delivery person for the bootleggers. I mean, they had stash houses. At these blind pigs, these speakeasies, they would keep a supply of alcohol that they needed 
for two or three days. That way, if they ever got raided, they would only get a two or three day supply of alcohol. That's all the police would get. They wouldn't keep their whole stash there. I mean, they didn't buy alcohol, you know, 30 cases at a time. They were buying two, three hundred cases at a time, storing it somewhere and getting it as they needed it. Because the people that ran these speakeasies, you know, they would have maybe 50 speakeasies in an area. And they had to supply all of them. Well, you know, they couldn't buy 30, 40 bottles at a time. So he would, you know, him and other taxi drivers, truck uh, people with trucks, cartage trucks, moving trucks, they would ship, uh, you know, they would ship uh, and move this alcohol around for the bootleggers. And another thing that made me very suspicious was uh, in 1915, He's borrowing money off of his wife. And in 1916, he owns two taxi cabs, or supposedly he's the owner of the two taxi cabs. But they're registered in someone else's name. This made me very suspicious, too. I mean, the only asset of a taxi business are cars. Well, why don't you have them in somebody else's name? The only reason to have them in someone else's name is if they were being used for an illegal purpose. Because if, like, say you were caught shipping alcohol or delivering alcohol, they would not only seize uh, the alcohol, but they would seize the vehicle you were uh, uh, using to transport it. Yes, but, just, just like today. If you're transporting yeah, drugs, they'll take everything. That's right. But what, what, what the bootleggers or the people uh, would figure out is if the cars were registered in somebody else's name, then the real owner could come to court and say, well, man, this man was only driving the taxi cab for me. I didn't know what he was using it for. Mm -hmm. And I did some research into that, too. It happened more, more times than you care to mention. That that's exactly what would happen. The bootleggers, uh, the real owners of the cars or trucks or whatever the alcohol was being used to transport in, they would show up at court and say, I had no knowledge of this. And because they, the court couldn't prove that he had knowledge or he was involved with the alcohol business, they'd have to release the cars or trucks back to them. Not so easy today. No, now, now you can't get away with that. So so no. now, now we suspect that he's possibly, you know, running alcohol, but you said that the body was staged, so the well, how, was staged. How, what did that mean? Okay, uh, his body was found, like I said, he had been um, stabbed 14 times all in the back, but in the police report, it describes that his pants were pulled down and his privates were hanging out. Okay, now, I don't know if anybody, uh, if your listeners or anybody else is um, familiar with uh, Italian customs and traditions, but whenever there is revenge for an insult to another man's woman or wife, done by the husband or jealous boyfriend or something, this is a very typical matter to leave the body as, as sort of a, a statement 
to everybody else. You know, don't offend my woman, don't offend my wife, because I'll leave you in a, in a, in a you're left in a, a state of disgrace for all of eternity when you're, when you're, you know, left in that manner. Mm-hmm. So this is why I knew. Uh, this is one of the things that led me to conclude that the motive for the murder wasn't a spur-of-the-moment thing. It wasn't really an insult to somebody's woman or wife, which is exactly the motive the police seized on, because they had no other motive. But his behavior before that showed that he wasn't interested in any other woman except his ex-wife. So the planning of leaving the body in that state was to mislead the police as the motive. Yes, exactly. I mean, the most, one of the most important elements in any crime is motive, and in murder especially. You find out why was this done to this person? Well, why was... And, so they, they didn't have anything else to seize, seize on it. So they seized on that, that he insulted somebody, somebody's woman. The man got enraged and took revenge out on him. And he was an Italian. And there was a bit of an, a, an Italian population in Toronto at the time. You know, uh, there was a wave of Italian immigrants in the early 1900s. And but, that was one of the traditions. Now, uh, you know, it... In their defense, in the authorities' defense, though, they did not have the investigatory methods available to them that they have today. They kind of had to just take everything at face value. Oh, exactly. Oh, I don't fault them. I mean, you know, I, and even in one part of my book, I mentioned that the, the, the investigative techniques a uh, hundred years ago are almost primitive compared to what they have today. Yes, and, and I, I said that to say this, though, because if you're trying to piece together this scene in your head, you've got this man's body in the middle of a park, and his his pants are down, and, and his genitals are, are exposed, and we know that that is a, you know, a, an allusion to something cultural, would that say to the investigator that this man was caught in the act right here? Or did, you know, was he killed someplace else and then brought here as a public example? The police seized on the motive that, uh, that, that the insult was to this woman who was with this man the night that they hired taxi cab. That's what's with the police. They thought it was a street affair or that he had said something to this woman in the presence of her husband while he was uh, driving them out to that area, and it enraged the woman. And another reason that I knew this was phony, uh, this was all staged, was at one point the police were getting very close to an address in Toronto where they could have done some very serious investigating into the murder. And and the woman was hiding in Montreal, Canada, which is east of Toronto, about 350 miles. And the woman took a train on the way back 
to Toronto. And on the train, she met a young Canadian soldier, a man, a man by the name of uh, Arthur Colin Kilner. She got into a conversation with uh, Arthur and asked him to pick up her suitcase in Toronto and offered him $5 to do it. Well, $5 was a weekly wage back then. <laughs> and he was a little bit taken aback by that. He says, well, you know, why don't you pick up the suitcase yourself? And she explained to him that a week earlier, uh, her and her husband hired a taxi cab to go out to the High Park area. And that the driver had said something to her that enraged her husband. And she didn't know what happened, happened after that because she departed their company and went up the road. All she knows is the next day the man, the, man, the taxi driver was found murdered. Oh. Now this, you've got to keep in mind, this is seven days after the murder. This is seven days after the murder that everyone in Toronto is talking about. It's in the newspaper every day. Um, there's three police forces working on it. They can't come up with a clue. And all of a sudden, she admits to a perfect stranger her and her husband's involvement in it. Well, the result of this meeting, oh, by the way, she also had a, a drink uh, on the train with this young private in the Canadian Army. Shortly after the drink that they share together, he takes ill. And halfway to Toronto, uh, there's a, a small city called Belleville, where uh, is a, the train stops. He had to be taken off the train and admitted to the hospital. The doctors diagnosed that he had been poisoned. What? Wow. He had been poisoned. That... The woman obviously poisoned him. What, now, why, why would she if she needs him to okay. get the suitcase? Okay. Well, the, 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 getting the suitcase was a ruse. That, the, the, that, she wasn't interested in getting her suitcase at all. She laid this story on him, knowing that after she poisoned him, the police would be called in. Because, I mean, the, I mean his suspicion, uh, Arthur Colin Kilner, the, the Canadian private, he, his suspicion was aroused by her offering the money to pick up the suitcase. And then when he heard the story about her and her husband being with the man that had been murdered, that this unsolved homicide that everybody in Toronto was talking about, three police forces were working on. I mean, why is she telling him this? He, he's a perfect stranger. It's seven or nine days after the murder, and she's admitting their involvement in it. The only reason she did this was she knew that after poisoning him, he would get in touch with the police, which is exactly what he did. He told his story to the investigating uh, Ontario Provincial Police Officer. And uh, what he did uh, was he went to Montreal to look for her because during the conversation, she had said to him, that she was returning to Montreal, that's where she lived, she actually showed him a return ticket. The fact of the matter is, where she told him she lived in Montreal didn't exist. There was no such place. But she did show him a return ticket, which she could have bought. You know, she didn't have to show any ID. Or she just could have bought a return ticket, showed it to him. Because at the same time she did this, 
the police were getting close to where they could find out some clues in Toronto. So I believe there was a phone call made from the house that they had visited. Actually, two police forces had, had been down at this house in Toronto asking questions. The people panicked. They phoned yeah. her. She devised this plan, got on the train, spoke to the young Canadian private, poisoned him, knowing uh, that, she, that he would call the police, and she used him to relay her false story to the police. And the result was the police went to Montreal to look mm. for her. And she, was, she was never going to be in Montreal. And that's so, not the only... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, because um, we're getting ready, you know, we're running short on time. So what conclusion, after your investigation, what conclusion did you come up with? My conclusion was that um, my great-uncle had gotten himself involved in the uh, illegal alcohol trade. The, bu the, the book also um, describes how that happens. There was a lodger at his parents' house that, ha that had ties to organized crime and got him involved in it. I had to dig that up, too. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, he, I think during one of his arrests, because he was arrested twice, the police uh, flipped him, made him into an informer, and he had informed on these uh, these bootleggers, which were an Italian organized crime group, and uh, and they made plans to get rid of him. They he was actually he was killed in July. In February, he received a letter threatening his life, telling him to stop talking to the police. Now, this was in a newspaper report, but it didn't say what he was talking to the police about. That's what I had to find out about. Uh, so he, he was made a target by the media. That, I think that's fair to say. No, no, well, no, it, um, it, this is after the murder. It came out that, that the letter was received in February. Actually, he was already murdered when the, when the newspapers reported that he had received this letter threatening his life in February. Ah, so, so this was found during the police's investigation. Exactly. He didn't receive the letter and go to the police. He, was, mm. he received this letter. It, was, it, it told him, stop talking to the police. But what I didn't know was what he was talking to them about. That's what I had to find out. And once I found out his, his involvement in the illegal alcohol business, then I had to identify this man and woman from the taxi stand. And like I said, they, they didn't actually commit the murder. They planned it. They, their job was to lure him out there. But someone else committed the murder. Yes. Well, I mean... This, this is a multi-layered mystery. It, here. it, it is. is not on one plane. Yeah, it's like an onion. You, you yeah. peel off that top layer, and there's another one waiting beneath. So, as I unraveled one mystery, and finding out who these men, who the men and women were that originally hired them, like I said, this was the key to solving this crime. This took a long time for me to do. 
Their names were never mentioned. They were never identified. No one ever spoke. I had I have been in touch with descendants of the people uh, that knew my great uncle and everything, and 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 were involved in the case at the time. It was never passed on from one generation to another. Their names remained a secret. But I had to find out who they were. There was no sense going any further. They were the key to the whole crime. That was the that was the first mystery. Then you had to find out who actually committed the murder. Well, sounds like you've got a series to write. Well, oh, it's all in the book, and uh, I did. Uh, what's that? No, and I was going to say. Um, the book, Murder, Lost of Time, is the true story of one of Canada's oldest unsolved murders. Um, where can our listeners find your book? It's, they can get it on Amazon. All they have to do is go to Amazon.com and type in Murder, Lost of Time. It's available in paperback or in a Kindle book. Um, very reasonably priced. It's under $20. It's got photographs in it, and it details... Not only my investigation, but it unravels the mystery from a hundred years ago as to what happened to my great uncle, why this was done, who did it, and what happened to them. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.